catching an Uber recently, you may have noticed that prices and wait times are worse than they've ever been. Rideshare companies like Uber and Lyft didn't fare well during the pandemic, and now that restrictions are easing, drivers aren't coming back. Rideshare companies like Uber and Lyft are pumping millions into new and return employee incentives. If I don't accept a DoorDash order, I'm not paralyzed like Uber would be. So if you don't accept so many Uber um, trips, Uber likes to penalize you. Honestly, I don't think I'll ever go back to Uber unless they pay their drivers more. But as more drivers like Seleski switch over, those who bank on a ride home from apps like Uber and Lyft are finding themselves stranded. Motherboard staff writer Edward Anguasso Jr. spent some time talking to Uber drivers to find out what's going on. He's here with us today to tell us what he found out. Here's a preview. Uber and Lyft can't find drivers because gig work sucks. I'm Matthew Galt. And this is Cyber. Ed, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. So why are gig workers checking out? You know, it really just comes down to the work sucking. Like the working conditions horrible, the pay is horrible. And before the pandemic, workers were checking out because of concerns about safety, concerns about pay, concerns about stability in their own mental and physical health. Um, and then as the pandemic started to rage, as the company failed to provide PPE, as it, you know, fumbled its sick pay um, policies and tried to deny uh, extension of relief to workers, as they felt uh, overwhelmed with whether or not they were going to qualify for unemployment, uh, something that Uber and Lyft have opposed uh, in courts previously, they simply said that it was not worth it. And a lot of drivers ended up not coming back. And this is on top of the fact that most drivers leave Uber and Lyft uh, every year. There's a lot to unpack there, but I want to like kind of lay this foundation at the top. So there's a reason that Uber was so cheap for so long, right? And it's part of the company's long-term growth model. This is something that you've written about extensively. Will you kind of give us the Cliff Notes version of that? All right, Uber and Lyft ride-hail companies in general were, when they entered the market, were faced with a problem, right? Taxi services already exist, and they provide rides at a price that's regulated. How are you supposed to undermine them if it is going to cost you probably more to do those rides because you're not going to have a guarantee by the state to have them priced at that point or have the cost come in at that point? So they got venture capital subsidies, money from investors, to provide rides at lower prices and for a short amount of time provide drivers with more money than they would regularly get on average working. And the goal was we are going to use these below cost prices, predatory prices, uh, to attract customers at an unnatural rate. And we're going to use it to undermine competitors who don't have you know billions of dollars in investment money backing them so that we can get rid of them and uh, when all is said and done, we'll be able to hike prices and the customers will have nowhere to go and we can end the subsidies and we can finally earn the profit. But nobody saw a global pandemic coming. It's a little disruptive to that, right? Right. So how did the pandemic affect, and you've already talked about it a little bit, but how did it affect, I think the drivers primarily I'm interested in, how did it affect the drivers? 
Yeah, you know, a lot of drivers that I spoke to and have spoken to since the pandemic started were just felt like Uber and Lyft didn't really care about them. They were not getting PPE. Uh, the main places where they would have, these uh, green light hubs, green light centers, uh, where you go to get onboarded, where you go to have questions, where it's really the only place you're likely to interface with a human being, were closed. And then the companies announced that they were closing a significant amount of them permanently. So you're not providing PPE for drivers. You're not providing them guidance or input. You're giving them delayed messaging about CDC guidelines to be followed, and sometimes it's contradictory. You're also not providing for them um, adequate relief so that they don't have to drive. A lot of drivers felt like their options were to starve or to risk infection, right? Uh, because there was no sick, paid sick leave. And then when it was, it was incredibly low uh, paltry sums. You know, I had drivers who talked to me about how if they calculated everything that Uber took for them over the years, one driver's example, it's like 60,000 pounds um, over you know, six years. And they were only getting offered a few hundred dollars for paid sick leave. It was uh, nowhere near enough what needed to make ends meet. Let alone not be forced to keep working. And so a lot of drivers were considering leaving, left because of the frustration, left because of the inability or, uh, to actually you know, stomach staying around or risk an infection. Some of the reporting has highlighted the CARES Act and the guidelines that allowed for independent contractors like Uber and Lyft drivers, as they're currently misclassified to claim it, helped, uh, you know need that final push that a lot of drivers needed. Even though they knew it was unsafe, even though they knew they were at risk, they could not bring themselves to quit because they were making money and they were the primary you know, wage earner for their household or the caregiver for their family. They needed that job, even though it could kill them. Are they, is Uber doing anything now or Lyft doing anything now to try to lure drivers back? Yeah, they're rolling out incentives, right? And this is an interesting thing because for a long time, the companies already were, they were spending hundreds of millions of dollars in incentives for drivers. And they've cut those incentives over the years, in addition to cutting the base pay rates for drivers. So this massive incentive program is actually just like a return, not even really a return to the norm, but could be seen as like an attempt to get back to what drivers might have been compensated if the base pay rates weren't cut, but if they also didn't have those stupendous driver incentives that were around for the first few years of Uber and Lyft. This doesn't... It's one of those weird stories where so much of the Uber's behavior, I guess, just doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe that's because I, I've worked for a living too long. So another aspect of this that I thought was really strange was that in New York City, Uber recently locked out employees from using the app. Right. In 2019 and going into 2020, the early parts of the pandemic, Uber and Lyft and Via, I believe at the time, which was when it was still around, were faced with a predicament, which is that uh, New York City passed a bunch of rules that put a wage floor and also or put a cap on licenses, but not cars. Um, and so as a result, they were also uh, required to reduce the amount of deadhead time, the amount of time drivers spent without a customer in the back. All of this would result in an increase in driver working conditions and pay, 
but that goes against the point of Uber, Lyft, and other ride-hail companies, which is they're operating at a loss right now in the hope that one day they'll be able to make a profit because they've walked in the customers, and so they need to reduce driver costs and labor costs as much as possible. So they came up with a pretty, pretty uh, ridiculous and exhaustive quota system that would dictate the terms on which you are allowed to go online by forcing you to make X amount of trips. And the, if you do the math, the trips would basically come out to you having to drive 60 hours a week with a significant amount of those hours during peak traffic times um, for you to be able to get the privilege to schedule next week's hours at ideal driving time so then you would have you'd be able to rest easy a little bit. Um, and a lot of drivers were simply unable to do that got locked out, and by locked out, basically the app does not allow you to drive during hours that others would drive because they've set those hours. And so you're just given, you're relegated to like, you know, low demand, undesirable hours where you're not gonna get much business and effectively fired, right? Because you're not, if you're going to be driving, you know, for this company, you're doing it because you have a good idea of when to drive, where to drive, how you'll make that money back. But if you're being forced to drive at certain times, and they're not making ends meet, and they're just piling up uh, costs on your car, you quit, right? And so they didn't fire tens of thousands of drivers, but they forced tens of thousands of drivers to quit because the other option was to just, you know, put miles on the car and eat into the gas tank every single day. So are there, where do Uber drivers and Lyft drivers go after this? Um, you know, that is a good question, right? Because one of the problems is that uh, one of the problems remains that since we don't actually have in this country a real um, social safety net, we don't actually have like any real mechanism to absorb people into jobs that would give them dignified working conditions and pay. Many of them may ultimately end up going back into the work, and they're scared of that. A lot of the drivers spoke to were insistent that they would never return. Right, but also these are people who, over the years, have wrestled with quitting and not quitting, and ultimately may or may not have to return because they have families at home and also families overseas that they're sending the money to. Right, so a lot of them will try to do work elsewhere uh, in ways I think mirrors the the mass. I don't know if it's a mass exodus, but the the amount of people quitting. Right, the large numbers of people quitting retail jobs, restaurant jobs. Uh, and not wanting to come back. The question, yeah, I think the real question is, okay, if you don't come back, then what are you going to do? You know, a lot of these people drive also because they love it, right? You know, a lot of people in New York City and San Francisco and these major cities, they drive because they enjoy talking to people or they enjoy um, the sort of freedom that it, you, you might have. You're just cruising around with someone and you're picking people up and dropping them off. And to lose that is, is going to be devastating for a lot of people. They may try to work with other apps, you may try to work with taxi companies, you may try to work with the company later, um, or they may just try to exit into another industry. But then there's also the concern, it's like, this is a problem across the economy. You're allowed to be treated like shit and paid like shit. Yeah, I mean, this is, um, this one of the things I really, one of the reasons I really want to talk to you about this is that this is a phenomenon that's not relegated to just Uber, right? We've got this gig work epidemic in the country that is really, I mean, as somebody that worked retail for 10 years, I look at gig work and I'm like, I can't even, it was, I was already scraping by and barely able to do it 
you know, 40 to 50 hours a week when I was a retail employee and they treat people like shit. I can't imagine working for one of these companies, it, like technically not even being an employee, right? Um, so one of the, the threads here that I've been, I've been seeing in the coverage, this, this is part of a bigger story in the American economy. Millions of Americans have survived the pandemic and realized for one reason or another, what we were doing for a living was not working out. So where do you see this going in the next year? It really depends on the decisions that are made to either increase wages or give people a chance to choose jobs that they want and enter industries that they want or to change labor laws so that people are not being treated like shit at their workplaces. I mean, there are a lot of jobs right now that the way that they're constructed and the way that the law has eroded, managers and employees think it is fine for the conditions to be horrible and for the pay to be horrible and for the turnover to be high, right? We don't have to have warehouse jobs or front-facing retail jobs or, you know, restaurant jobs that pay you starvation wages and work your body to the bone to the point where you cannot work there because you will get an injury or because you'll have a breakdown or some other problem, right? Um, but the question is, is there any interest in doing that? I think a lot of people do view these sort of conditions as immutable, as facts of life, right? That, you, that part of working retail, you know, is getting uh, harassed when people are getting dominated or you know, submitting to the domination by a boss. Same at restaurants. And I worked at restaurants for a while, and that is pretty much like everyone. You accept that that's just kind of how it's going to be, right? For the duration of time of working there, you put your head down. It doesn't have to be that way. But I also don't know if we're going to be able to change those sort of larger issues um, structurally right now. Because things like the PRO Act are stalled and it doesn't look like there's a way to get it passed in the Senate. Because a lot of the legal reforms right, um, could also be struck down in the courts, which are dominated by right-wing reactionary judges or case precedent that uh, is anti-worker in general. And because we also have a Supreme Court where it would end up ultimately that is pretty anti-worker. There are ways, like I can envision ways, laws, reforms that would be passed, but the question is like, one, can they actually get passed in Congress? And then two, can they survive scrutiny in the courts? At this time right now, that may not be the case. So there's something I hear, the argument on the other side that I often hear, and it's usually the one coming from somebody grilling. People are staying home because unemployment benefits are too good. Uh, what do you make of this argument? Uh, I mean, I think that's that's... That's a weird way to say that people are staying home because their pay is so bad. I mean, that's really what you're saying, right? <laughs> if unemployment is too good, that means you're getting paid like shit and it's not high enough for you to consider going back. And that is not, it, it doesn't, I don't understand why when people think that, they don't think like that doesn't, isn't the immediate thought that occurs to them. Because then the question is, we don't have a particularly generous welfare system. So why are you getting paid more on unemployment which is a system that has been subjected to horrendous cuts in the tax by conservatives and right-wingers and even liberals over the past you know, few decades. I think it's a stupid take, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I also don't think people understand how much goes into just being on unemployment, like how much of a job and it actually is. But that's a whole different podcast. No, but I think you're right. You know, like it is like these are... 
it's a process that demeans you each step, right? The constant paperwork, the constant need to prove that you're actually looking for a job, right? Also the restrictions um, for people who are on other uh, welfare programs, right? Like food stamps, there are restrictions on what you can actually use them for. I mean, all of this is, it's not like just free money that's being told out. I think that's another thing that people who've never been on it don't get. Yeah. All right. So to bring this back around to Uber, does Uber ultimately survive this labor shortage, do you think? Or do they have to change? Do they have to give people more money? They have to go more into the red? Yeah, it's interesting because I think it's pretty clear that investors don't really care about Uber's finances, nor does Uber really care about pretending like there's a real path to profitability that doesn't involve massive amounts of wealth transfer from the workers and consumers, right? But But there is a real question of, like, if it can turn around the labor shortage, right? Can it... Um, you know, what Uber might think it needs to do is increase incentives, right? And that might increase, you know, drivers and retain drivers a little bit longer. But that will that actually get more people uh, be hired? I don't know. And there's also the question of, like, you know, Uber has a turnover rate that's above 95% and has had that for almost every single year it's existed. What if it has just actually depleted the labor pool, you know, of people who are willing to work for it? That's a question that I don't know if we are going to be able to answer until it actually happens, right? But, I mean, Uber could survive it. I mean, Uber has survived pretty horrendous scandals, crises at every step of its uh, existence, mainly because of how promising the returns are going to be for investors if it does get a monopoly. All right. Thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and walking us through this. His latest article on this is Uber and Lyft can't find drivers because gig work sucks. Thanks for having me on. It was great talking with you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cypher. It's that part of Cyber where we decipher the week's biggest tech stories. With me, as always, is staff writer Lorenzo Franceschi Bicarai. Sir, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you, Matt? I'm doing all right. I got uh, I got a little bad news about a sick cat yesterday, but I'm doing okay. Mm. I don't want to bring and I don't want to bring the show down. So let's just jump right into. Uh, uh, oh, these stories are all kind of depressing. All right, well, let's get into it. So mm-hmm. police are telling ShotSpotter to alter evidence from gunshot detecting AI. Uh, Lorenzo, what is ShotSpotter? Well, that's a very good question because that's really the heart of this story. Uh, what is ShotSpotter, how reliable it is, and should police use the use it 
for court cases. My understanding of ShotSpotter is that it's a technology that relies on sort of a network of microphones installed in uh, neighborhoods, which uh, previous multiple reporting has shown that they are predominantly Black and Latino communities, you know, showing clear bias from the police on where to put these systems. And this network of microphones records, you know, ambient noise and is designed to detect when a gunshot goes off. Uh, the, the, the technology relies on algorithms. There's also some human review, which is, you know, not automatic. I think it's just uh, comes into play if there's some issue. And this is the story here. This story um, centers around the case in Chicago where a 60-year-old man is accused of murdering a 25-year-old. The the accused claims that he wasn't, you know, it was uh, the other man was shot in a drive-by shooting and he just picked him up and brought him to the hospital. And the key evidence in the case is um, a report from ShotSpotter that places the shooting at a certain location. But it turns out that the shooting was a little bit further and the defendant's uh, lawyer essentially is arguing that this technology is not reliable, should not be entered into the case, and it's completely moot. And what's interesting here is that the prosecutors essentially said, you know what, we're not going to use this evidence anymore. Let's, you know, let's drop the evidence, which, uh, you know, uh, some of the experts interviewed in the, in the piece essentially argue that this is a clear sign that the police does not want to talk about how this technology works, does not want to really get into uh, how it was used in this case, because if this was enter- entered into evidence, then the defense would have had a, the right to really see all the needy and greedy of how this worked. And to to motherboard and cyber listeners, uh, this may sound familiar years ago, there were a lot of stories about stingrays, which are surveillance devices that the police uses to intercept text messages and locate people uh, using cell phones. And years ago, there were many cases where the police also dropped uh, this kind of evidence uh, in an attempt not to disclose how the technology actually worked. Yeah, and I want to highlight something very specific from this story, too, uh, that I thought was really interesting. It's not just that they backed away in this particular case that they backed away from using the evidence, it appears based on documents that the, the, the man's public defender was able to turn up that someone had accessed the shot spotter data and altered it so that something that had been registered as a firework in the database was then called a gunshot later. And they had also moved, you know, you said this, but specifically moved the location at which that shot was heard. Um, and then as soon as someone called them on it, they abandoned it completely. Um, so I just think it's it's interesting when we have these new technologies, especially with forensic science, uh, where we have something that's, that supposedly is going to tell us objectively what's occurred and where. We have to be very careful, especially when we're talking about you know, sending people to jail for a very long time. Yeah, and it's important to note that this is not the only case where evidence has been withdrawn. And uh, Todd, the author of the piece, also uh, delves into another case where a jury acquitted a defendant because, uh, you know, citing sh- uh, spotters unreliability. So, you know, there's a history of controversial use of this evidence. All right, let's move on to the next story. Everyone loves AI. Everyone hates malware. 
soon you may have malware in your AI if you don't already. Researchers hid malware inside an AI's neurons, and it worked scarily well. What's going on here, Lorenzo? Yeah, this is really interesting research from a Chinese um, university, the University of Chinese Academy of Sciences. Uh, the researchers there found that they were able to essentially embed malware with steganography, which I think we talked about uh, last week, into a neural network. So the idea here is that um, a hacker or a hacking group could uh, recompile some sort of neural network model, uh, add the malware in, and hide it in, and the model would still work. You know, the AI would do the job it was designed to do, but the user would get infected with malware. And the researchers uh, showed, you know, showed this by creating a malware like this, and they ran it through some antivirus scans that could not detect it. So their hypothesis is that this could be one day, maybe one way to infect people with malware. Right. And the idea here is kind of these programs are so big and made up of so many different component pieces that it's fairly easy to slip in pieces of bad code um, and remain undetected, right? Yeah, that's correct. It's just another way to, you know, trick people into running malware, essentially. And, um, you know, I think it relies on the fact that more and more companies and developers uh, are using this kind of software. And perhaps they're not as careful into in checking whether it's malicious. So as uh, yeah, as the researchers know, this could be another avenue for interesting supply chain attacks. Yeah, I really enjoy. Uh, you don't normally get pretty definitive statements from researchers in a paper like this, but this this stuck out to me. As neural networks become more widely used, this method will be universal in delivering malware in the future. Yeah, that, that remains to be said. Uh, Radameli de Leon, the author of the piece, quotes an expert saying that this may be a little bit overkill. There are other ways to do it. But, you know, if, if anything we've learned from the history of cybersecurity is that if it's possible and if researchers say it's possible, eventually someone will use it. It's just a matter of time. All right, let's move on to the last story, which is the one I really wanted to talk about um, and is written by you. Facebook says death to Khomeini posts are okay for the next two weeks. This is based on some stuff that's going on in Iran. Lorenzo, can you can you kind of set this one up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so last week, uh, a lot of Iranians took to the streets to protest a water shortage in a southwestern region in Iran. Uh, these protests then sparked more protests in Tehran um, over, you know, the usual complaints that Iranians have, which is, you know, they're under an authoritarian regime. regime, And uh, a lot of them were like chanting death to Khamenei, which is a very common chant. And, you know, while in Farsi, it literally means death to Khamenei, uh, given the context in English, it would be more like down you know, down with Khamenei, fuck Khamenei. So what was happening here is that Instagram was taking down a lot of posts that mentioned this chant or had the hashtag uh, of the chant. And a bunch of uh, internet activists and researchers that focus specifically on Iran noticed this and reached out to Facebook and said, hey, what's going on here? You know, your content moderation filters are taking down uh, important documentation of protests in Iran. And Facebook's response was interesting because they were like, oh, yeah, our bad. Uh, we have reinstated the post. Uh, we understand that the chants are, you know, in the context of protests, are not actually incitement of violence. 
which is what uh, Facebook initially flagged this for. Uh, and and then they had this like really funny policy of saying, yeah, you know, users can say death to Khamenei for the next two weeks, uh, but then we'll go back to the usual policy. Is it possible that Facebook would allow an extension to the death to committee mean if if perhaps protests continue to pace for more than two weeks? Yeah, they said that it's a uh, you know it's subject to review. What's really like the big question here is if Facebook really knew that these trends were okay, why did they not? catch this earlier. Um, they also, in the email that we got, which was uh, sent to these activists, uh, Facebook said that they had made this exception, this specific exception for death to Khamenei chance before. So again, at some point in their moderation filters, at some point in the process, uh, maybe the algorithms flagged this, maybe a moderator with not a, not a lot of experience flagged this, but you know, it seems like it's a small mistake, but, you know, we have to remember that Iran is a very closed society in terms of internet access. Uh, the government has a lot of control over what people can do and cannot do on the internet. And users turning to Instagram is one of the very only ways for them to get some of this information out, which is heavily censored. And, you know, it's heavily censored by the government, usually. In this case, it was censored by Instagram. So... I just want to highlight a couple things about this story. I think it was probably my favorite story of last week because it touches on so many of the things that I'm constantly thinking about. One of them being that we do live in a world where these big tech companies like Facebook, like Twitter, have a certain amount of control over what the discourse is going to be like and how you're going to talk. And here in the West, in America specifically, we love to rail against this while simultaneously complaining that social media is ruining our lives. Um, even though we're all addicted to it and we're all using it. Um, and the view from an activist in Iran using Facebook, using Instagram is much, much different, I think. Um, and this is something we saw kind of starting in the Arab Spring and, uh, you know, has continued on that the way people in Libya, in Iran, um, in, you know, Eritrea, in the, uh, you know, if anyone's following what's going on there right now, uh, use these social media platforms is much different in their relationship to censorship um, and how Facebook moderates its content is much, much, much different in other parts of the world. Um, and then you also have this aspect where like Facebook is making political calculations when it decides what to censor and what not to censor. Right. Even like it has to, to a certain extent play nice with uh, the Tehran, but it also knows that it, gets a bunch of juice and traffic from these activists. I, so I just think all of this stuff is very complicated and very interesting, and there's not really easy answers. Um, it's one of these areas where we are defining the bounds of what is acceptable in the moment every day. Yeah, that, those are really great points, and I think they're really relevant here because, uh, again, for Iranians, Instagram and Twitter, you know, back in the day during the green so-called green, green Revolution, was they were really tools to document what was happening, to show the world, you know, the atrocities of the regime that otherwise were not coming out because, you know, there's very few Western journalists in Iran uh, and the few that are there are either kicked out or, you know, heavily censored. 
So for them, this is not really just about political speech. It's about, you know, documenting uh, crimes and uh, abuse of power. And and all these posts, all this documentation can just be taken off, offline because Facebook does not know the context and the political context of uh, of these posts. Yeah, I mean, content moderation for Facebook and Twitter, I think, is just a nightmare they didn't really see coming, right? Because the, the like you said, the context in each individual country is so completely different uh, that it can be hard as a Bay Area company to navigate all of this stuff. Yeah, and it's very jarring that Facebook was basically like, you know, I think this trend is okay because the, you know, the circumstances on the ground are bad, but like, that some of the circumstances on the ground in Iran are bad all the time. So why shouldn't activists and opponents to the regime not be able to voice their, you know, their anger online? Yeah. And, you know, I'll have to punch out here before I start talking about the Rohingya and like get us into real trouble. Um, so with that, Lorenzo, thank you so much for coming on Decipher again and walking us through all of last week's best tech stories. Thanks, Matt. Always a pleasure. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.